Come here for some water. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Gentlemen, opening your Bibles with me to Psalm 2. Before we begin, I want to lead us in prayer. Please join me. Father, your servant King David prayed, Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. And together, as a band of brothers, we ask that that would be our experience today as we get into the Word of God. And that as we look at the Scriptures, we would find that it would transform and change us. All to the praise of your glory in Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. I want to read verses 1 through 5. Follow along in whatever translation you have. The psalmist asks, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. <laughs> he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. As you probably know, this is a messianic psalm. In verse 2, it talks about the Lord's anointed. The Lord anointed in the Hebrew is Messiah. The Lord anointed in the Greek is Christ. We'll see in a moment here how the New Testament references this. The psalmist asks, why do the heathen rage and the nations imagine a vain thing? What are they raging against? What are they rebelling against? Why do they rebel against Christ, the Lord's anointed? Well, verse 3 tells us. It says that they are in bondage and they want to be set free. And in their endeavor to set themselves free, God sitting in the heavens holds them in derision. He mocks them. He laughs at them. They were born slaves, and they will remain slaves throughout eternity. Now you may ask yourself, in what sense is a man born a slave? And I would suggest in the most profound of all senses, in the sense that he's not in control. He never has been, and he never will be. Look at your own life and you realize that you're not in control. You've never been in control. You never got to decide on those things that you consider to be the most important in your life. For example, you didn't decide your sex, your parents, your gifts, your intellect. You didn't decide the era of history in which you were going to be born, the country in which you were going to be born. Nor, gentlemen, do you decide the flow of circumstances that come through your life. <laughs> when you think about it, the only thing you really get to decide is how you're going to respond to those things over which you have no control. Now, most men perceive that wealth will give them this control. And <laughs> they become angry when it does not meet their expectations. Now, we talked a little bit about the Garden of Eden. God said to Adam and Eve, our parents, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. 
Now Satan came along and said to him, Now that's not going to happen. For God knows that the day that you eat of the fruit of this tree, you will be like God's, knowing good from evil. I want to call to your attention that God never said to them that if they ate of the fruit, they would be able to discern good and evil. He just simply said, I don't want you to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was the lie of Satan that said that the day you eat of it, you will be like God's knowing good and evil. Now, obviously, the knowing of good and evil was not knowing right from wrong. Otherwise, they would never have been culpable. Now, the question was, who gets to decide what is good for you and what, who gets to decide what is evil for you? And Satan rightly said, that is the heart of the matter. If you get to decide that, then you get to replace God. And God said, it's not going to happen. Whether you eat of the fruit or not makes no difference. It's not going to happen. There is simply no way that God is going to surrender control of his universe. Now, all cultures in all ages have understood predeterminism. That is, that people do not control history and the events that come into their lives. The Hindus call it karma. The Muslims call it the will of Allah. The ancient Greeks call it fate. The Christian calls it providence. But all of them agree that they do not control, they have never been in control, and they never will be in control. And note with me, gentlemen, that we are never more insecure than when we are out of control and realize it. Especially when it dawns on us that there is nothing we can do about it. I looked up the word slave in the Bible. Now, I use the King James Version. And in the King James, the word slave appears only twice. Once in the Old Testament, in the book of Jeremiah, and once in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation. All the other times, the word is servant. But the Greek word, as you know, for servant or slave is doulos. That's why at the Air Force Academy, they call first-year students doulies, slaves. That's all you are. You're nothing but a slave when you get there. That word appears in excess of 150 times in the New Testament. I don't know about you, but it seems to me that the word servant is a softer word than the word slave. The word servant creates the impression that I've got an option. The word slave creates the opposite impression. Any question or comment? Okay, what I want you to do now is I want you to look with me at another passage of Scripture, Acts chapter 4, verses 22 to 28. Now, the context here is Peter heals a man. As a result, he's brought before the Sanhedrin, that is the highest judicatory body in Israel. He's set free. And upon being set free, the people comment by quoting Psalm 2, the very psalm we read a moment ago. I pick it up in Acts 4, verse 22. Follow along, please. For the man was above 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing was shown. And being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. 
And when they heard it, they, were, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, Thou art God, which has made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is. Who by the mouth of Thy servant David has said, now here's where we pick up the quote out of Psalm 2. Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy Jesus, whom thou hast anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. Now in verses 27 and 28, it says that the people plotted to kill Jesus Christ. And that that plot was a fulfillment of what God determined before the foundations of the world. God created people as his slaves slaves to providence and he knew that men would not like that and would rebel and knowing that he decided again before the foundations of the world that he would send his son Jesus Christ and the passage says to us that he decided he predetermined that Herod Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, would kill Jesus. Any questions or comments? Yes, Thomas. You know, this, this is very disturbing. <laughs> and it, it's the same thing that always disturbs me when I go back and I read in the Old Testament about... Um, God hardening somebody's heart. Like poor Pharaoh, man, the guy was toast before he got going. And the uh, the issue of election versus free will, when I read something like this, I think, what if you're one of these guys? I mean... Where's where's the opportunity for this guy to be clean before God and go to heaven? Now, Tom, that is a question that men have asked from the beginning. That's at the very heart of predeterminism. That's what makes people so mad. Now, the Bible teaches two contradictory, mutually exclusive ideas. One is that if you get to go to heaven, it's because of what God did, not because of what you do. Remember that grace is the byproduct of election. That is, you cannot have grace without election because grace simply means you brought nothing to the relationship. From start to finish, it was God's idea. So if you go to heaven, you've got nothing to brag about. God did it. If, however, says the Bible, you don't go to heaven, you've got no one to blame but yourself. Now you say, how can that be? And my answer is, I am the finished idea. <laughs> but the Bible teaches both, and the Bible requires that you believe both. Now, men, any time you think you understand it, at that point you can know you're wrong. <laughs> any other comment or question? All right, let's take a look at another passage. Hebrews chapter 4. Now, Hebrews chapters 3 and 4 discuss the importance of entering into the rest of God. R-E-S-T.
parenthetically, the rest of God, it seems to me, is unbroken fellowship with God on a day-by-day basis. And so he calls to the Hebrews' attention a chapter, an unfortunate chapter out of their history. That is the incident at Kadesh Barnea when the spies brought back a majority and minority report. And the people listened to the majority and said, Ooh, would to God we could die in the wilderness, and what's going to happen to our kiddies? And God gave them their request, but sent leanness to their souls. He said, In the wilderness you will die, and I will bring the kids into the land. And so the writer says that the Canaan rest was the rest that the children of Israel refused to enter because they did not believe God. Then the writer goes on to say, but that's not the only rest he's talking about. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For if Joshua had given them rest, then David would not have spoken of another day later on. David obviously being much later than Joshua. There remains, therefore, for us a rest. And we who enter into that rest must cease from our works, as God did from His. So the second rest is Christ's rest, the rest that we have to enter in, but the qualification is the same for Israel. We've got to believe God. And so, says the author, this brings us to the third rest, which in reality is the first rest. That is the creation rest. And that's where we pick it up in chapter 4 at verse 1. Please follow along. This is one of those warnings. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I swore in my wrath they shall not enter into my rest, although the works were finished from before the foundation of the world. For he spake in a certain place, of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all of his works. Ah, says the author, the reason why we can rest is because the work of God is finished. It was finished from before the foundation of the world. That all history is, is an unfolding of that which God determined before the first thing was created. And we can rest because we know that God is in control. And the reason we know that God is in control is because he finished his work before he ever began creating. He is in control and he will do what he thinks best. For our God is in the heaven and he has done whatsoever he has pleased. So again, gentlemen, history is nothing more than an unfolding of that which God determined before history began. (coughs) Nothing ever surprises God. Predeterminism. He determined it before it got started. And again, Everybody who has ever lived understands this to be true. You may call it the fickle finger of fate, or you may call it the divine hand of God, but he decided it. That's the reason why, gentlemen, in the Bible, the word victim never appears, nor the word accident. It is antithetical to everything the Bible teaches. Now, gentlemen, you 
may disappoint God, but you'll never surprise him. And the author to Hebrews says that if you want to enter into rest, you've got to believe that God finished his work before creation. It is because he rested that you can rest. It's an issue of control. He's in control. The Lord declares the end from the beginning, from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my good pleasure. He is in control, and gentlemen, I don't care what you think of it, he's never going to let go of it. You will always be enslaved to providence or predeterminism. Any questions? Yes, sir. Can you uh, cover the accident and victim concept again that it's not in the Bible and just kind of fill yes. that a little bit? There are no accidents simply because God declares the end from the beginning. There are no victims simply because God says, I'll never surrender my control over your life to somebody else. That's why Hebrews 13.6 quotes from the psalmist. The Lord is my helper, therefore I will not fear for what can man do to me. Yes. If, if there are places other than our faith that we have free will, how can you explain your previous comment in light of um, a job that we take versus a different job that we take or a path that we go down versus a, a different path? Or you hear the debate of, depending on what you believe, there's m different people out there for you to marry and... God leads you, or your path leads you to one versus the other. How can you, you know, uh, how can you explain that in light of what you're, you just said? I can't. <laughs> I already told you, gentlemen, that those two ideas are irre irreconcilable. And again, the moment you think you finally got it figured out, you can say to yourself, "I'm wrong." They are unfigureoutable. <laughs> if such a word exists thank you now gentlemen there are two kinds of slaves those who are shackled to circumstances over which they cannot control and they are angry because they cannot set themselves free and the psalmist says that God laughs at man's attempt He's like a bird flying in the cage trying to get out. It will never happen. So Psalm 2 says God holds them in derision. Interesting that only in, in the Old Testament, only in Psalms and in Proverbs does God laugh. And in each time that God laughs, it is in derision. He mocks the hubris of man. The second kind of slave is those enslaved by Christ. Now, gentlemen, not all people are Christ's slaves. This is a voluntary relationship. To illustrate it, in the Old Testament law, God said, if perchance a Hebrew falls on hard times and has to sell himself into slavery, the maximum time he can be that slave is seven years, after which the master must set him free. However, if that slave 
says to himself, you know, my life is much better being the slave of my master than being my own free man. Then he can go to the master and say, I want to be your slave in perpetuity. In which case, the slave is taken and a hole is born in his ear and that man will be his master's slave until he dies. And in that, God illustrates for us in the New Testament the relationship that he will not force upon us but is ours for the asking. Now, you can spend the rest of your life trying to be free and you'll wander in the wilderness of dashed hopes and unfulfilled dreams as surely as Israel spent 40 years taking an 11-day journey because they had a hard time learning that lesson. And when you die, you'll end in hell. Or you can accept the futility of trying to be free and volunteer to be the slave of Christ. And when you do that, you enter into his rest knowing that he is completely in control and does whatever he wants. But understand, gentlemen, only the willing slave of Jesus experiences rest. And this is straight from the mouth of our Lord himself. So I call your attention to those very familiar words of our Savior in Matthew chapter 11, verses 12 through 30, me, 28 through 30, where Jesus says, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I, <laughs> I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Now, gentlemen, you were born wearing a yoke. You were taken where you did not want to go. You were told what you wanted could not be had. And you are perpetually opposed in everything that you do. You're not as smart as you'd like to be. You're not as well-coordinated. You're not as gifted. You're not as... have as much money as you'd like. You're not freed from authority. You finally broke free from the authority of your parents only to find that the government's looking down your neck. And gentlemen, probably most disconcerting of all you're not free from circumstances. Cancer invades your life and nobody asked your permission. Your daughter, that beautiful love of your life, is driving her car down the road and a man comes into her lane and hits her head on and she goes through the windshield of the automobile and you next see her in the uh, hospital scarred for the rest of her life, living in excruciating pain, and your heart breaks. And there's not a thing you can do about it. And gentlemen, that is life. You can get mad at God, you can get mad at circumstances, it won't do you a bit of good. Nothing is going to change. He is not going to give you control. You will wear this yoke into eternity. You'll never be able to shed it. You were created for God. God was not created for you. Or, what you can do, is you can take the yoke of Jesus. Now I said, Jesus, my yoke's a little bit different. It's easy. It's an easy yoke because I share it with you. 
It's light. It's light because I will ensure that your burden is never too heavy to carry. Now, you may think it's too heavy, but I promise you, there'll be no testing ever come into your life that I will not make sure is not too great. 1 Corinthians 10.13 Now, most men hate being slaves and wish to be free. If this is true, you will be perpetually at odds with everything and everybody throughout eternity. Now there's a few, not many, a few, who when they look at things really don't want to be free. They look at Jesus and they say to themselves, you know, I'd rather be his slave than a free man. And so I ask you, gentlemen, if God gave you the choice, if God said to you, no, I am going to let you be in control. I'm going to let you be free. I'm going to let you shape your own destiny. Remember that autonomy and the will are related. I will allow you to exercise your will in free of your in, in, in the direction of your autonomy. You can be free, truly, truly free. My question to you is, would you take it? Or, like the Old Testament slave, would you say, knowing what I know now, I'd rather be your slave in perpetuity than be a free man. Now, gentlemen, you may reason to yourself, I'm never going to be free anyway, so I might as well be Jesus free, the slave. But Jesus says, no, I don't want you on that basis. No. And remember, he knows every thought and imagination of your he knows what you want and what you do not want. And if you don't want to be his slave, he won't have you. I know of no place in Scripture where God teaches that he will force it on you. So, Freedom, autonomy, independence, they're all a myth. You will not exit slavery, not now, and not in eternity. So, gentlemen, being the slave of Jesus Christ is the best deal in the universe. But only for those who, if they had a chance to be free, would turn it down. But understand, men, he will not tolerate. Now hear me and hear me carefully on this. He will not tolerate your endeavor to be free. What this means is you must live in perpetual brokenness and dependence upon him on a moment-by-moment, -moment, day day-by-day basis. Only then do you experience his rest. Gentlemen, repentance is not just an act. It is a state of being. Anything short of this calls into question your desire to be his slave and put your soul in peril. Any questions or comments? Yes. Um, I'm curious, going back to your illustration of the vehicle accident and the hospital room, if there is in fact nothing that we have to do at that point, then why do we pray? What is the point of asking and keep on asking, seeking and keep on seeking? Why knock if in fact there is no movability in that Situation. Yeah, I hear you. It's a very good question, and I have, <laughs> believe me, 
I've asked myself that many, many times. You have not because you ask not. You ask and receive not because you ask and miss. Now, men, if you're thinking straight, you have decided between you and God before you ever begin asking that if He doesn't want you to have it, you don't want it. That has got to be a precondition to any and every prayer. Now, I am grateful to God Almighty for many, many things in my life, men, but few things I am more grateful than the fact that He did not give me what I wanted. I shudder to think what my life would have been like if God had granted me my requests and prayers. Oh God, don't let that happen to me, I beg you. Now why then do I pray? Because he tells me to. But, there's more to it than that. Jesus says, in Matthew chapter 6, He says, when you pray, don't do it before people. If they see you, you've got your reward. But all I want you to do is I want you to go pray in the closet. In secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Now, what an extraordinary promise from God. Now, think about that. Let me illustrate for you. In your closet alone, between you and God alone, nobody knows about this between but you and God. You pray for a missionary friend of yours who's dying of cancer. And you plead with God. And you plead with God. God, don't let the man die. Let the man live. And the man dies. And you say, what difference does it make? And God said through his Lord, his the Lord Jesus, it makes a huge difference. A huge difference. Because your Father who hears in secret will reward you openly. So there is something to be accrued from prayer other than the answer to the prayer. Am I making sense? Yes. Maybe a follow-up question then. Going back to Daniel chapter 9, 20, the 70 weeks prophecy. Mm -hmm. um, Gabriel comes to him and it, it says, And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill and understanding. At the beginning of your supplication, the command went out seeming to indicate that there was a trigger point at the point that Daniel began to pray, it triggered something in heaven. Absolutely. Absolutely. Categorically, yes, yes, yes. So then our prayers can trigger a response Oh, no question about it. Elijah was a man of like passion such as we, and he prayed that it might not rain, and it rained not by the space of three years and six months, and he prayed that it would rain, and it rained. So we can see things happen. Maybe we see them or maybe we don't see them. But prayer makes a difference. Forgive me for creating the opposite impression. Yes, sir. Um, you know, Jesus, when he walked on earth, uh, he would encounter people blind from birth or crippled. And then, uh, you know, there... It, it said wherever he went, he healed all that were sick and crippled or diseased. And as Christians, I've, I've been told that we have the same authority, the authority of the believer, to manipulate, if you will, I don't know if that's the right word, but to encounter the same things as he encountered and to use our faith and prayer to change circumstances. So if if somebody that was blind from birth hadn't encountered Jesus, you know, one might say that, well, that's that person's plight, I guess, in life. And But uh, he was trying to show a, a better way, I think. Don't you agree? 
Well, let's look at that for a moment. We, we get a different flavor, if you would, when you move from the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, to the Gospel of John. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus heals out of compassion. In John, he performs miracles to show his own greatness. Let me give you two illustrations out of John. John chapter 4, there is this guy who has been an invalid, and he's there at the pool of Bethesda. And Jesus walks over all these people lying around the pool of Bethesda, waiting for the waters to be moved. And he goes down and he grabs one guy and he says, you're healed, follow me. Now, with a little sanctified imagination, you can imagine all those people saying, oh, whoa, whoa, hey, how about me? No word from John that he didn't listen to them. Second illustration. In John chapter 9, Jesus walks down the steps of the temple with his disciples and they encounter a blind man. The disciples asked an obvious question, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus says, gentlemen, God fortunately can count higher than two. Neither this man nor his parents, but that the Son of God may be glorified. Now, if I were the blind man, I would have said, whoa, 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 wait a minute, time out, time out. Are you telling me that you created me blind, left me sitting around on those steps all those years just so you could come along and heal me to call attention to your greatness? And Jesus said, you just got it. That's exactly what I did. And if you don't like it, go to hell. Now, gentlemen, remember, you are his slave. He created you for his own good pleasure. He did not create you for your good pleasure. And he will do with you as he pleases. He is good. But he gets to define what good looks like. Not you. Chris. Walt, I have a two-part question for you. One, the writer of Hebrews talks about faith being operative in this process of entering into God's rest. Yes. I was wondering if you could comment on that and also on our adoption as sons. Yes. Good questions, Chris. Yeah, if we don't enter into our rest, it's because of unbelief. Remember, believe and faith are the same word in the Bible. Okay? Faith is the noun, believe is the verb. Pistis. So, yes. Our faith is never passive, it is always active. Hebrews 11. By faith Abraham obeyed. By faith Moses forsook. By faith Abel offered. They're all active. Faith is never passive. Adoption. Jesus says in John 15, I think it's 15, somewhere in there, he says to the disciples in the upper room, he says, henceforth, I call you not slaves, I call you my friends. For the slave doesn't know what his master does. But all things that the Father's revealed to me, I've made known to you. You're my friends. It's instructive to note that Jesus called them friends, but that is not what they called themselves. <coughs> Peter, 
the slave of Jesus Christ. Paul, the slave of Jesus Christ. No man ever said, Peter, the friend of Jesus Christ. Now in that very dark chapter of our history, when we enslaved people, it was not uncommon at all for the slave to be the best friend of the master. But remember, he was still a slave. Chattel that could be bought or sold anytime he wanted. And you're his son. You are his friend. But you are his slave. Yes. A quick question. I wondered if you could contrast for me how how what we're talking about, the idea of being born to be slaves, contrasts with the idea of uh, Isaiah 61 saying that the Messiah came to proclaim freedom for the captives. How does that compare? Yes. The Old Testament slave was captive to his deprivation. So he became the slave of another man. He was freed from his problems, but he was not free. Jesus Christ set me free. Men, I know this is not going to come as a surprise to you, but he set me free from me. I have always made me sick. If you think I'm bad, you don't know the half of it. And Jesus set me free from that to be his slave. But not to be autonomous. Steve? Well, um, I'm unclear on the motivation to become Christ's slave. Uh, I think you were saying that being tired of being a slave to sin and to your to yourself is is not an an adequate motivation to become Christ's slave. Rather, uh, you have to uh, come out of a an opportunity to be free and then choose. Help me with yeah. with that. Okay, let me use an illustration. You remember that in the book of Job, Job is obviously a slave. The circumstances over which he has no control. Would you agree with that? And he's not a happy camper. Now, he says, chapter after chapter after chapter, would to God I get a chance to address my concerns to God Almighty. As a matter of fact, he says, I wish there was an umpire that could exist between me and God who could vote over this miserable circumstance because I'm sure that God, that that this umpire, the impartial umpire, would vote in my favor and against God. So finally God comes to me and says, okay, you got the mic. Talk to me. By the way, Job, were you present when I created the universe? Are you sitting on the edge of the universe when I threw the stars into space, when I created Leviathan? Did I ever come to you or any other man and ask for counsel on how it ought to be done? Who in the fat do you think you are? Henriksen translation. (laughs) Remember, Remember Job's response. Steve, do you remember Job's response? Okay, Job says to him, Okay, God, you win. (laughs) Justice is in the interest of the stronger. It's the golden rule. He who's got the gold makes the rules. If you feel good beating up on me, be my guest. So it was kind of resignation. Exactly. Rather than... Exactly. So what happens next? God says, No, 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 no. Let's go back over it one more time. And then he reviews, once again, basically the same material that he had covered earlier. And then what happens the second time? 
You tell me, General. What happens the second time? Repentance. Resignation gives way to repentance. Gentlemen, God will not accept a slave in resignation. Only a slave in repentance. My gift is ambiguity, remember. Yes. Irreconcilability of our choices in life and, and God's control. Yes. Do you, have, do you have any observations to help in uh, how we should live before that paradox? Yes. Any good that comes to you, say, God, you're good to me. You did it. Any bad, it's your own dumb fault. Gentlemen, this is the opposite of the world. You ask the Philistine. If he makes a million dollars, what does he say? I did it. If he loses a million dollars, what does he say? Pardon? Yeah, exactly. He never says, I did it. God says, I want to change a world view. Jesus said, that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination with God. If you want to know how God thinks about it, by and large, take the view of the world and invert it. Any other questions? Well, gentlemen, I want the record to show that I ended early. Yeah. <laughs>